I think no matter what the situation is, I will not end up on the street, even if that means we will be living in tight quarters. As Russia continues a major offensive in eastern Ukraine, other parts of the country are regaining some normalcy. For Tuesday, May 31st, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How well do red flag laws work? These are laws that temporarily take guns away from people who pose a danger to themselves or others. Being able to say, this year you didn't have any mass shootings, and that's because of extreme risk protection orders, is difficult because you may not have had any anyway. Also, an investigation by NPR and the Marshall Project has uncovered abuse and a string of inmate deaths at a federal prison in Illinois. On 12-15-21, a young prisoner was killed in cell F-313. I'm in cell 15. First the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden has met with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell at the White House and underscored that he wants to provide the Fed with the space to tackle inflation. Here's NPR's Asma Khalid. This meeting comes against the backdrop of persistently high gas prices, groceries and rent. And on the same day, The Wall Street Journal has an op-ed written by the president about his efforts to curb inflation. My plan is to address inflation. It starts with a simple proposition. Respect the Fed. Respect the Fed's independence, which I have done and will continue to do. When prices first began to rise more than a year ago, the Fed and the Biden administration said inflation was transitory. But high prices have stuck around, and that has posed a political challenge for the president. His team is now focused on amplifying the work the White House is doing to fight inflation. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. And now to Texas, where the Uvalde City Council has announced it is canceling today's special meeting. Three new council members were scheduled to be sworn in, one of them was Pete Arredondo, the embattled chief of police of Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District. The Texas newsroom Sergio Martinez Beltran has details. The meeting was scheduled before last week's school shooting at Rob Elementary that left 21 dead. Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin says the focus today will be on the first funerals of the victims. But it's hard to ignore the fact that Pete Arredondo was going to be sworn in as a council member. Arredondo serves as the chief of police of Uvalde schools and is said to have led law enforcement's response to the shooting. The Texas Department of Public Safety has said the way he handled it was wrong. Officers waited over an hour to breach the classroom where the suspect was. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Uvalde. Democratic and Republican senators, meanwhile, are expected to continue building on talks from over the weekend about stricter gun measures in the wake of the Uvalde massacre. At a local Kentucky civic event about gun control, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell talked about the bipartisan group's efforts without mentioning firearms. Discussing how we might be able to come together target the problem, which is mental illness and school safety. Democrats echoing many survivors and parents who've lost children to mass shootings want to see severe restrictions on the kinds of high-powered firearms used in the shootings in Uvalde, Texas, and earlier in Buffalo, New York, that together claim more than 30 lives. Over Memorial Day weekend alone, there were more than a dozen mass shootings involving four or more people reported across the U.S. North of the border, efforts are underway to pass stricter gun measures. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's proposals include a freeze on all handgun sales and transfers. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 233 points at last check. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some Boston Children's Hospital doctors are outlining steps the federal government could take to reduce childhood gun injuries and deaths. The government has taken similar measures on auto safety. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more. The steps include collecting more information about when children are injured or killed by guns, more research about prevention, and translating that research to gun safety tools. Boston Children's ER physician Lois Lee says guns are more political than vehicles, but clear findings might change behavior as happened with cars. Part of the reason we have been so effective in decreasing injuries and deaths to motor vehicle crashes is because there's a lot of science behind what works. Since we haven't had substantial research funding for firearms, we don't have the science, nor do we have the research. Guns passed cars in 2017 to become the most common injury-related means of death for young people. Lee's comments were recorded by the New England Journal of Medicine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. With the U.S. Supreme Court seemingly poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, a new report gives us a closer look at who has sought out abortions in Massachusetts. The Boston Globe crunched the data based on 2020 statistics. It found black women made up about 20 percent of those who got abortions. About 7 percent of the state population is black. White women got about 46 percent of all abortions in the state. The report also found most of the women who've had abortions are not married, and most of the procedures in the state, about 73 percent, are performed before eight weeks gestation. Boston police are warning customers at bars in the area about the threat of having their drinks spiked. Police say they're aware of several social media posts indicating people believe their drinks were spiked, which is illegal. Officials urge anybody who thinks it's happened to them to notify police. They also recommend people at bars and nightclubs never leave their drink unattended. In the forecast, beautiful day today. Clouds move in tonight, though. The off chance of showers falling to about the mid-50s overnight tonight. Then the cooler weather sticks around through the rest of the work week. Tomorrow should only reach for about 60 as a high. Lots of clouds around, maybe some afternoon showers. Thursday, the clouds stick around. Temperatures making it to the mid-60s. Not much change for Friday. Cloudy and coolish. 59 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it attacked on three fronts, from the north, from the south, and from the east. Ukraine, as we know, fought back hard. Russia scaled back, but it is still pressing a major offensive in eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, head west to places like Kyiv, and life is regaining a sense of normalcy. We're going to talk through these dual realities with NPR's Ryan Lucas who is in eastern Ukraine, and NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in the capital in Kiev. Hi, you two. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi there. All right, Ryan, you begin. Let's start in the east. Where are you in Donbass? And just paint me a picture. What does it look like? So I am in a town called Pokrovsk, uh, and it's not that far from the main fighting front uh, of Donbass at this point in time. Uh, a lot of civilians here have already fled west. The big Soviet-era apartment blocks in Pokrovsk uh, are pretty much dark at night. You only see one or two windows with lights on in any given building. Most shops are closed. Some towns have sporadic power and gas and water. In others, all three of those have been cut. And the war is really an ever-present thing here, not 
in an abstract way. We were woken up our first morning here by a missile strike that shook the windows and doors in our hotel room. And as you drive further east on the roads, closer to the front, pretty much all of the traffic is military. So tanks, armored personnel carriers, troop carriers, stuff like that. And in towns like Bakhmut and Kramatorsk, uh, you hear the heavy boom of outgoing and incoming artillery and rockets pretty much all day and all night. All right. So artillery and rockets all day, all night. That's the soundtrack in the east. Greg, where you are in the capital, what's life like there? Because Russian troops got very close, but uh, then pulled back, and that was weeks ago. Yes, that's absolutely true. So it's a completely different scene from a couple months ago when the capital was really in lockdown mode. We're having some beautiful spring days. The parks are overflowing with families. Cafes are packed. And yes, we do see some long lines here. But now most people are waiting for ice cream. <laughs> uh, there are a few signs of war. Uh, soldiers are mixed in with the civilian crowds. We still get the occasional air raid sirens, which are widely ignored. And, you know, Mary Louise, almost all countries at war do have these dual realities. Places like eastern Ukraine, where Ryan is, 400 miles from the capital, where people are fearing for their lives, losing their lives, and places like Kiev, where people are relatively safe and just trying to get on with their lives. It's so striking. It sounds in a strange way like it's back, somewhat like the way things were when I was there right before the war, late January, start of February. Kiev felt very normal. Cafes packed. People were out ice skating. And then when we went farther east, same thing. You heard gunfire. Um, you saw military vehicles on the road. I am curious, Greg, just take me slightly outside Kiev to the suburbs that we heard so much about, like Bucha, where there was just absolute devastation. What does that look like today? Yeah, there's a remarkable cleanup going on, and the rebuilding is well underway. I mean, you're just about 20 minutes or so outside of Kiev when you go there, and I'm sure many of our listeners recall the photos of all those burned-out Russian tanks, the mangled civilian cars. The, the bodies the, in the streets. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, several hundred by, by Ukrainian count. Um, this is all gone now. We drove around the town on the completely cleaned-up streets. All those burned-out vehicles have been towed to junkyards outside Bucha, the chewed up streets have all been repaired. We have also seen pictures, though, of giant apartment blocks bombed out, destroyed. Where are people living? Yeah, the, the housing shortage is definitely the biggest problem, but there is some progress. Poland has donated prefabricated dormitories. They're being set up on school playgrounds, in parking lots. People should be moving in soon. At City Hall, my NPR colleague, Julian Haida, and I met Jana Rahovitz. She's 55, and her home was damaged. She's staying at the home of relatives who went abroad, and she considers herself lucky. I think no matter what the situation is, uh, I will not end up on the street, even if that means we will be living in tight quarters, uncomfortable quarters at the very least. We have family that we're able to depend on, and there are most certainly people here in the city who are in a worse situation. So I don't want to overstate the recovery. Many parts of Bucha, as we've seen, are completely gutted, but it's very much coming back to life, and it has a distinctive soundtrack. The pounding of hammers, screeching buzz saws, and the grinding of power drills. Oh, it's a very different soundtrack to what I was hearing in the East even before the war. Ryan, what, what, just the state of the war, what is, what is the state of play on the battlefield where you are? Well, it's not great for Ukraine, frankly. Uh, we talked to several soldiers who said that they had received just two weeks of training before being sent out, out east here to fight. 
Uh, they say that they're ill-equipped and ill-prepared for the battle. They do acknowledge that that's not the case with every Ukrainian unit, of course. Some are well-equipped and well-trained. Uh, but one constant refrain that we heard from fighters out here is that Ukraine needs more heavy weapons. They say the Russians are following classic tactics out here. They're pounding an area with artillery and rockets and airstrikes and then moving forward with tanks and troops, and then they do that all over again. And the Ukrainians say that they have very little heavy weaponry to hit back with. The howitzers that the U.S. have provided are helping, but they need more of them, the Ukrainians say. And now the White House may announce as soon as tomorrow that it's going to provide longer-range rocket systems for the Ukrainians, which is something that they've been begging for. But Ukrainians say time is of the essence. The clock is really ticking out here. What about just the calculation for civilians, Ryan? The, the should I stay? Do I want to fight for my country or do I go try to get my family to safety? What are you hearing from people? Well, a lot of people here have left. Uh, for those who have stayed, though, things are getting increasingly difficult. One woman that we talked to only gave her first name, Olga. Uh, she said much of Severodonetsk is destroyed. She had just fled the city. Uh, but like many people here, she seemed to have this ability to deal with these horrible circumstances and things that are going on and yet retain her sense of humor. She was sitting in the back of an ambulance waiting to be evacuated when we were talking to her, and the air raid siren was wailing in the background. And as it turns out, her 69th birthday was the following day. And she teased us about it. She said, where's my cake? Why don't you have chocolate? <laughs> she just laughed. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this immense amount of sadness and grief. Uh, and one thing that has stuck with me was as we were saying goodbye to her, she started tearing up thinking about her home and her city, which she doesn't know when she'll ever see again. And she repeated this one line over and over. On every street, she says, there were roses and chestnut trees. Roses and chestnut trees. Ah, uh, what a beautiful and what a heartbreaking image. That is Ryan Lucas reporting in eastern Ukraine and NPR's Greg Myrie reporting in Kiev. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. In the wake of the mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo, red flag laws are being cited as a way to cut down on gun deaths in the U.S. These are laws that allow the removal of guns when there is a risk of violence. They're on the books in 19 states. NPR's Martin Costi talked to researchers investigating whether they work. These are sometimes called extreme risk protection orders, and the idea is to temporarily take guns away from people identified as a risk to others or to themselves. And when it comes to self-harm, the studies show that they work. Garen Wintemute is director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis Health. And he says for every 10 to 20 red flag orders that are issued, you reduce the total number of suicides by one. As a clinician, thinking about an intervention, that's really effective. But when it comes to preventing mass shootings, the numbers aren't so clear. And that's because mass shootings are statistically more rare than suicides, says April Zioli, who studies the effect of gun laws. So being able to say this year you didn't have any mass shootings and that's because of extreme risk protection orders is difficult because you may not have had any anyway. Still, researchers are trying to get a handle on this. Zioli is collecting data on outcomes in six of the red flag states. And one thing she can already say is that the laws are used unevenly. Some states just out of the gate had quite a lot of extreme risk protection order petitions filed. Florida is an example of that. She thinks that's because Florida passed its red flag law in the wake of the school shooting in Parkland and people were more aware of it. 
Another factor is who gets to petition for the orders. Early versions of the laws limited that to police, but more recently states have added family members to the list, and even unrelated people living in the gun owner's household. There's also the question of whether the local criminal justice system is prepared for this process. In the very beginning, we had law enforcement showing up, I remember, at like a district court and did not have any luck trying to figure out how to do it. Kim Wyatt is with the county prosecutor's office in Seattle, where she's part of an interagency unit that follows up on gun orders. She says getting prosecutors, courts and police working together has led to the recovery of about 200 firearms a year under the state's five-year-old red flag law. You need people to figure out the process of how you do the actual petition, what is the process to get it to the court, and then really to focus legal advisors or prosecutors that can guide on the enforcement part too. There is, of course, a fear that red flags might be abused, that, say, a vengeful ex-spouse might lie to get someone's gun taken away. In a paper that looks at how the law works in Oregon, researcher April Zioli says she did not find a pattern of that, she says more than 90% of the petitions ended up being approved by judges. If the respondent is filing it in a vengeful way and there is no evidence, then the judge can charge them with a crime. Still, red flag laws are controversial. Gun rights groups call them a threat to the gun owner's right to due process. There's no such law in Texas, the site of the latest school massacre by a troubled 18-year-old. And given this reality, Aaron Kivisto says it's important to keep other tools in mind. Legislative means aren't the only means to help reduce people's risk. Kivisto is a psychologist at the University of Indianapolis who's followed the evolution of red flag laws. He says the data we have so far show the importance of intervention, even if it's informal. You know, family members or, or close friends in the community who might store the gun during a time of crisis. You know, it's law enforcement doesn't need to be involved in every case to have the same general outcome of separating somebody from a firearm. Martin Costi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, more Cubans are leaving the country than ever before as the island faces its worst economic downturn in decades. That story and film critic Bob Mondello on how film companies have changed the way they calculate opening weekend box office figures. That's coming up. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. May was a roller coaster ride for Wall Street stocks, but the month ended little change for the Dow. The index finished 0.67 uh, points lower today, 223 uh, points to close at 32,990. S&P was down 0.63% to close at 4132. The Nasdaq fell 0.41% to finish the month at 12,081. Some high-priced payouts put a dent in the state's lottery profits last month. Sales in April were off also by just about 5% compared to April of last year. As a result, net profits for last month were down about $27 million compared to the year before. Mass Lottery says for this fiscal year so far, sales are up, but net profits are down compared to the record haul last fiscal year. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet. 
live May 26th or June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th, semesteroff.com. Cloudy skies moving in tonight, falling to the mid-50s. The month of June should start up gray. Clouds tomorrow should only reach about 60. Thursday, cloudy still in the mid-60s tops. 59 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from X-Chair, maker of X-Office Chairs. At home or in the office, X-Chair offers dynamic variable lumbar support as well as LMAX heating, cooling, and massage technology at xchair.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Cubans are coming to the U.S. in numbers not seen in decades. In April, nearly as many Cuban migrants were apprehended at the U.S. southwest border as in all of last year. This as Cuba is facing its worst economic downturn in decades. And as NPR's Carrie Kahn reports from Havana, Cubans are selling everything they have to fund their way off the island. This 38-year-old man gives me a tour of his one-bedroom home that's up for sale. It's a low-slung concrete house outside Havana, just blocks from the beach. I'm only using his name Marco. He says he'll face repercussions from the government if he talks about his plans to leave the island. He'll throw in the mattress, the refrigerator, and washing machine, too. Everything is for sale. Everything. Marco lost his job during the pandemic. He's an architect. But he says the economic situation got even worse last year when the government made the Cuban peso its sole legal currency. Inflation has soared, so has the black market, and government control of everything, he says. He knows life will be hard starting over. But at least I'll have tried. Here I can't even do that, he says. He was asking 15000 for the house. He'll now take eight, $8,000. It's fishing season now, says this real estate broker in Havana. He asked only to be identified as Alfredo so he could speak freely about his work. He sells everything in dollars and all transactions take place outside Cuba. All of Cuba is on sale now, he says. So if on one block there's 24 houses, 20 of them are up for sale. The other four, he says, are considering selling. (laughs) It's no lie, he laughs. He has more than 2,000 listings available. The government blames Cuba's dismal economy and the current exodus on the U.S., not just the decades-long U.S. embargo, but also tough Trump-era sanctions still in place. Tourism has tanked, especially during the pandemic, and Cuba can't find the cash to buy vital goods, everything from basic food to fuel oil. Una fruta, un mango, mil por ciento. Voy a comprar carne, mil por ciento. A piece of fruit, like a mango, now costs 1,000% more. Meat, also 1,000% more, says Cuban economist Omar Everleni. Entonces, hay una diferencia muy, 
marcada en la sociedad entre los que viven So now there is a marked distinction in society between those living on a state salary, just raised to about $50 a month, and those who get help from relatives abroad, he says. Inequality in communist Cuba is growing, and those who can are leaving. Lines outside foreign embassies are long. This woman, who asked to be identified only by her first name, Maria, gets a call from her husband while waiting in a Havana park by the Panamanian embassy. She's afraid to talk about plans to get off the island. The couple is trying to get a transit visa to Panama. Then we'll head to Nicaragua and look for work, she says. Visa requirements there were just lifted for Cubans who head straight north to the U.S. border. Leading the exodus are Cuba's youth. In the hallway of a rundown building in Old Havana, a group of teens are twerking and rapping before a video camera. This 18-year-old who uses the stage name El Chulito says he wants more opportunities. He doesn't want to give his name or talk politics. He says it's about music, and the only economy for that is beyond Cuba. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Havana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Top Gun Maverick cruised to a Memorial Day record this weekend, $156 million. Now that is good news for a pandemic-battered film industry, but there is one aspect of the way these numbers are reported that has critic Bob Mondello quietly muttering to himself. Movie box office figures used to be something that only people in the movie industry cared about. In the early 1970s, when The Godfather became the first film to make $10 million in a single week... This is business, not personal, Sonny! No one reported that fact. Well, then business will have to suffer. Except Variety and a few other trade papers, so there was no incentive to inflate the numbers by folding so-called preview showings into the opening day. The term preview was adapted from Broadway, where actors need to play a show a few times before critics arrive... Back in the Dark Ages, these were reduced-price previews, a quaint notion. Anyway, it wasn't a cash grab, it was a theatrical necessity. That does not apply to movies, obviously, and for decades, an opening date was an opening date. Take the film franchise that put Memorial Day weekend on the map. In 1977, Star Wars premiered nationally on just 32 screens, selling virtually every seat for every show, while a blindsided 20th Century Fox scrambled to strike more prints. Numbers were big, but limited by theater capacity, and headlines mostly talked about how the film stayed at number one week after week for the rest of the summer. By the time Star Wars Return of the Jedi opened on a thousand screens in 1983... You may dispense with the pleasantries, Commander. I'm here to put you back on schedule. Theater owners were ready, some cramming 24 hours worth of showings into that opening day by starting at one minute past midnight. I worked for a chain of movie theaters back then, and I remember those first shows sold to the rafters, fans synchronizing watches and counting down to the start. Nobody jumped the gun, though. That would have been cheating. In 1989, the clock started creeping backwards. Warner Brothers allowed theaters to start opening day Batman screenings, not at midnight, but at 10 p.m. the night before. In 1992, for Batman Returns, they allowed them at 9 p.m. and got some pushback, so the big movie of 1993 went back to 10 p.m. Thursday previews. Welcome to Jurassic Park. But by 1996, Independence Day had made it six 
p.m. Welcome to Earth. And after that, well, if your film had a substantial want-to-see first factor, previews became standard. Fans got used to booking night before opening seats for Hunger Games, Mission Impossible, Harry Potter, Black Panther, Fast and Furious. In fact, the practice got so common that films that didn't have any logical reason to use it, say the immortal Zac Efron classic, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. We don't want you showing up stag and riling each other up. We don't rile each other up! We never get riled up! Scheduled screenings in thousands of theaters the night before opening and took in a snappy 1.6 million dollars. So we have now arrived at Top Gun Maverick, Good morning, aviators. which opened officially on Friday, this is your captain speaking. but started its preview screenings on Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. Not sure by what conceivable logic that isn't opening on Thursday, but okay, it's how Hollywood rolls. Except that there'd been previous Top Gun previews, IMAX screenings all across the country on Tuesday and on Wednesday all folded into Friday for purposes of opening day bragging rights, a total of $19 million in preview money to add to the $32 million that Top Gun had made on its actual opening day. Any fun yet? And it doesn't stop there. Top Gun Maverick goes into the record books today with, and I'm quoting here, a record four-day Memorial Day weekend gross of $156 million, even though it took seven days to achieve that number. And why? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. That's about right. I'm Bob Mandela. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. After a stellar sunny day, we should have some clouds moving in tonight. Could have a shower around midnight. Temperatures in the mid-50s, not too far from where they are right now. And then for tomorrow, reaching about 60 degrees, lots of clouds, maybe afternoon showers. Thursday, clouds return. Temperatures make it to the mid-60s. 59 degrees now in Boston. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. Homegrown and local vegetable and flowering plants, native perennials, pottery, soils, and mulches. Greenhouse hours at volantefarms.com. Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And the Huntington's Common Ground Revisited. The Pulitzer Prize-winning classic comes to theatrical life, now through June 26th. Huntingtontheater.org. Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion on abortion shows that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade on the basis that abortion is, quote, not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. If the rationale of the decision as released were to be sustained, a whole range of rights are in question. We'll look at the fragility of unenumerated rights on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Russian energy company Gazprom says it's halted gas supplies to the Netherlands after a Dutch energy company refused to pay in rubles, as Russia has requested. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. In a statement, Gazprom says it has completely stopped gas supplies to Dutch energy company Gasterra due to what it calls a non-payment in rubles. Moscow has demanded clients from what it deems unfriendly countries, which includes EU member states, pay for any gas that comes from Russia in Russian currency. It's a way to sidestep financial sanctions against Russia's central bank over Moscow's war in Ukraine. Russia had previously cut off gas supplies to Poland, Bulgaria, and Finland. The Netherlands relies on Russia for around 15 percent of its gas, lower than the EU average of 40 percent. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Russia's military is slowly gaining ground in its offensive in eastern Ukraine. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports that includes its assault on the key city of Severodonetsk. 
Severodonetsk is the last major city in the Luhansk region still in Ukrainian hands. But Ukraine's grip on the city appears to be slipping. After weeks of shelling and rocket fire, Ukrainian officials say Russian forces have now entered the city and that there is fighting in the streets. If Russia were to take Severodonetsk, it would give the Kremlin, in essence, full control of the Luhansk region, one of Moscow's objectives. Luhansk, along with the region of Donetsk, make up the bigger area known as the Donbass. And it is in the Donbass that the heaviest fighting of Ukraine's war with Russia is now taking place. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 222 points. That's down six-tenths of a percent, ending at 32,990. The Nasdaq down 49 points at 12,081. S&P 500 down 26 points at 4132. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is distributing one-time $3,000 grants to every licensed family-based child care provider in the city. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says 459 providers will receive grants funded through the Federal American Rescue Plan Act to help stabilize their business. State data show Boston had a net loss of 30 family-based child care centers during the pandemic. Boston police are warning people about fake Celtics tickets in circulation. The warning comes as the C's prepare to compete in the NBA Finals for the first time in a decade. Officer Andre Watson says people often get reports of ticket scams when Boston teams are playing for championships. Whether they be, you know, any of the teams that have won basically the Patriots, Bruins or the Celtics in the past, it's, it's been an issue where um, counterfeit tickets have been purchased and then we get the call after the fact. Watson says fans should only buy tickets through authorized vendors and resale sites and avoid paying cash. The NBA Finals start Thursday against the Golden State Warriors in San Francisco. Former Beatle Ringo Starr's show this weekend at Boston's Wang Theater is sold out, but you can view his visual art there for the next three days for free. Starr's art will be on view and open to the public starting tonight, right alongside original art from Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and George Harrison. Box Center President and CEO Joe Spaulding says they've been hosting the show for five years. At the Wang Theater... Box Center, we are, in fact, the largest seller of original uh, Ringo Starr artwork in the world. All proceeds from the art sale go to charity. Average gas prices in Massachusetts remain high but steady. According to AAA Northeast, the average price for gas is $4.73 a gallon, the same as last week. That's 11 cents higher than the national average. It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MassArt Art Museum, Boston's only free contemporary art museum, designing motherhood on view starting June 11th, maam.massart.edu. Red Sox continue their homestand tonight with a two-game set against the Cincinnati Reds, 7-10 start time. And in the forecast, some clouds move in overnight tonight. Winds die down, temperatures pull back to about 50. Not much warmer than that tomorrow, only about 60 degrees with overcast skies, maybe a late afternoon shower. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. In Thompson, Illinois, there's a federal prison set aside for gang leaders and other men who are considered the most dangerous because they have caused violence at other prisons. But sometimes men get sent who maybe shouldn't be there. Maybe because when they got attacked at another prison, they fought back. Or because they have a mental illness and acted out. Now, imagine trying to survive at that prison where you are surrounded by men who want to attack you and guards who use harsh methods to control you. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro and Christy Thompson of the Marshall Project investigated that prison and found frequent violence, prisoners killing other prisoners. A warning, this story contains graphic descriptions of violence and abuse. Here's NPR's Joseph Shapiro. Last summer, Bobby Everson got transferred to the federal prison in Thompson, Illinois. In his letters home, like this one read by his sister, he started sounding more scared. This facility is for disciplinary inmates. I'm doing my best to stay out their way. I'm just a couple of years to the door. And then those letters started sounding more desperate. I got into it with a few officers and a few guys in here. Just keep checking up with me at this prison. Just days before Bobby Everson died, he wrote that corrections officers had it out for him. They'd given him a new cellmate. It was someone he told his cousin he was afraid of. And I got in a little scuffle with another dude they put me in the cell with. I feel the staff here is purposefully trying to put me in situations of conflict. I'm doing all I can to stay out the way. Pray for your little cuz, man, that I get through unscathed. An investigation by NPR and the Marshall Project finds that the U.S. prison at Thompson, Illinois, is one of the deadliest and most dangerous in the country. Prison records say seven prisoners have died violently since March of 2020. In 2016, we investigated violence at an earlier version of that disciplinary unit. That one was at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Then the federal government shut it down and moved it to Thompson. Now at the new prison, we found more violence and more killings caused by the same problems. Of two men locked down for 23 hours a day or more in one small cell about the size of a parking space. Of men placed in restraints, often painful four-point restraints, for hours or days. Of corrections officers putting two men together who they had reason to believe would fight. The um, chaplain had called me. On December 16th, Sabrina Everson got a phone call from the prison chaplain at Thompson about her son, Bobby, who the family called A.J. He said he was sorry to inform me that they had found A.J. on. They found him unresponsive in his cell at 9 a.m. in the morning. That's Ebony, Everson's sister. Yeah, yeah. When the body was returned to them in Syracuse, New York, they saw the many cuts and bruises to his face and body. At one point, a federal agent told them that Everson had died as a result of blunt force trauma. But that's it. They can't get any other details, not even the death certificate, more than five months after Everson's death. Not even after calling and calling. Hey, Ebony. The funeral home director back near the prison, he's trying to help. Hey, I, mm-hmm. I know you're probably calling on death certificates. Yes, yes. I... Uh, just checked this past week. They're not available to us yet, but I would expect them to, you know, not be too long. 
Uh, so within a couple of weeks. NPR knows more of the details than Everson's family. Because the day after he was attacked in his cell, another prisoner wrote us a letter. Demetrius Hill says he was a witness to the death of Bobby A.J. Everson. On 12-15-21, a young prisoner was killed in cell F-313. I'm in cell 15. That's someone reading the letter from Hill. We knew Hill, and he knew us because we'd interviewed him for our stories about abuse at the prison at Lewisburg. His description of how Everson died is disturbing. For one thing, Everson was small and slight, about five foot six inches tall. Hill says the cellmate is a large man, heavy and tall. The Bureau of Prisons says it can't talk to us about a pending investigation. Hill says corrections officers should have known Everson was in danger because the cellmate was telling them he was going to get violent. He had been telling the COs for two weeks, get the dude out of his cell or he'd kill him. He told this to numerous COs, even on the night it happened. At 10 o'clock, he told the CO during his rounds to get him out the cell or he would kill him. Hill says corrections officers ignored the threat. And even worse, on the night of the killing, one corrections officer even encouraged the cellmate. The CO told him, just do it. Do it. The CO then slammed the metal flap, closed over the window, the cell door window. We're not naming the man who Hill says killed Everson because he hasn't been charged with a crime. But Hill says other prisoners feared that man. He had at least, at a minimum, at least 10 different fights with 10 different inmates. He had numerous assaults on the staff. That's Demetrius Hill. Recently, he was transferred from Thompson. I spoke to him on the phone about the death of Bobby A.J. Everson. To force this kid in the cell with this madman, they knew the result. He had just beaten another prisoner who had been in the cell with him. I'm talking about maybe two weeks, maybe two weeks prior. Another prisoner, I don't know his name, and he was beating that inmate for days on end. Days on end, he was beating that prisoner. Finally, they took him out and stuffed Loopy in there. Loopy, that's the nickname Bobby Everson used in prison. On this and some of the details we've been able to confirm, Hill's story is accurate. We found Federal Bureau of Prisons documents that list Everson's death as a homicide, even though the BOP had not said that publicly. NPR was not able to independently verify other details of Hill's account. Hill also wrote letters to a federal judge in Illinois with some of these same details. We asked for more confirmation from BOP and the FBI, which is responsible for investigating Everson's death. Did the cellmate kill Everson? Was the cellmate known to be violent? Both the BOP and the FBI said they can't discuss a matter under investigation. Oh, God. I was scared for him because we don't know what's happening in them prisons, you know. That's Everson's father, also named Bobby Everson. The family wanted to know more. I read part of Demetrius Hill's letters to them about how he says their son died and about how he was terrorized in those last weeks by his cellmate. And Loopy stayed in his bed pressed to the top bunk, clearly spooked, lost, denied even a shower. He was completely powerless, a victim waiting to happen. I still don't believe it. It's just horrible. As for that prisoner who we're told killed Everson, we found his letters to a judge, and he had his own troubles. 
The man wrote he was paranoid, that prison officials wouldn't give him his medications, that he was attacked by a different cellmate. Just a month before Everson died, the man wrote to the court, I am tired of fighting people. There's one thing, according to evidence we found, that he and Bobby Everson had in common. Both were subjected to one of the harshest punishments at Thompson. They'd both been taken to the place that some prisoners called the dungeon and tied in restraints to a bed or chair. That's another problem we heard about again and again of men at Thompson. They are being what's called four-pointed, which means that they're having their arms and their legs stretched out and held separated for hours and sometimes days on end. That's attorney Jacqueline Kutnick Bowder. They are denied food, they're denied water, they're not given access to the toilet. Many of them report being left in their own waste for hours and sometimes days. It's, it's really akin to a torture chamber. Kutnick Bowder works for the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. That group sued the prison at Lewisburg, the prison that was part of the earlier NPR and Marshall Project investigation. The Lawyers Committee sued over the failure to give prisoners at Lewisburg medications and mental health care. That lawsuit was thrown out after the federal government closed down the Special Management Unit, a program for prisoners considered disciplinary problems, and moved it from Lewisburg to Thompson. Now those lawyers are hearing about the same problems at the new prison from dozens of prisoners. NPR and the Marshall Project, too, communicated with or read the letters to judges of a few dozen men. And a warning, their descriptions, which you're about to hear, are disturbing. The chains and handcuffs are so tight that your extremities go numb first, then they swell. Then the slightest touch when they do a restraint check will make you scream. These are read from some of their letters. The tightness of the waist chain and hand restraints felt as if they were eating at my wrist and waist. The slightest movement I made provoked pain that caused my mouth and eyes to flush open and stick as my body quivered. Men told us the restraints are kept on so tight and for so long, for hours or even days, that they're left with scars. The prisoners call these their Thompson tattoo. To be chained down inside of an ice cold cell where the restraints are cutting into your flesh, forced to defecate and urinate on yourself is torture. Over and over, we heard that guards put men in restraints over minor violations. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from an inmate at the Or that corrections officers jail. make up phony violations. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. To put someone they don't like into those harsh restraints. And each of those four units has a, a, a restraint room. That's Joseph Van Satch, who spent about three years at Thompson. It's cell 23 in every unit. There's a torture room there where they can four-point you. In March, Van Satch was found guilty of assaulting a corrections officer at Thompson after a seven-day trial where he represented himself. Van Satch argued in court that corrections officers lied when they said he slipped his hand out of restraints and hit an officer in the eye. Before, they used to put us in cell 101, the handicap cell, but the camera footage always disappears. A jury didn't believe Van Satch's version. But NPR and the Marshall Project got access to some internal Justice Department and Bureau of Prisons documents. 
and they say three corrections officers at Thompson were disciplined in another case for exactly that, for making up an excuse to take another prisoner from his cell and put him into restraints, and then faking injuries to one officer to back up charging that prisoner with assault. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Heads up if you're going to be traveling through the Ted Williams Tunnel tonight. The westbound side of the tunnel will be closed from 11.59 p.m. until 5 a.m. tomorrow. Highway crews will be installing pavement markers. Drivers will be detoured through the Sumner Tunnel. Truckers may face alternate detours. Coming up on WBUR, the bill of the month. Colonoscopy screenings are supposed to be free for people with health insurance, but it doesn't always work out that way. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And the Harvard Art Museums, works from artists Kahinde Wiley, Georgia O'Keeffe, Vincent Van Gogh, Rembrandt, and more. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. It'll be game 50 of the season for the Red Sox tonight at Fenway Park. They face the Reds for a quick two-game set. Michael Walker will pitch against Luis Castillo, 7-10 game time. And in the forecast, clouds move in overnight tonight as winds die down. Temperatures pull back to the mid-50s, not too much lower than it is right now. And then not too much warmer tomorrow, only about 60 degrees with overcast skies. Maybe a late-in-the-day shower. Thursday, heavy on the clouds. Highs only in the mid-60s. 59 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Red's Best with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. And WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Studies show that getting a colonoscopy saves lives by detecting or even preventing colon cancer. That's why the Affordable Care Act requires that insurers don't charge a copay, because a colonoscopy is one of the preventative services recommended for every adult. But Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal from our partner Kaiser Health News is here today, and that usually means something is not going as it should in our healthcare system, right? Uh, unfortunately, that's right. I'm here with another bill of the month. Exactly. Well, I just got my first colonoscopy, so I am very interested in what we are going to be talking about today. Who are we meeting here, and how did things go sideways for this person? Well, first, congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, today we're meeting <laughs> Elizabeth Melville of Sunapee, New Hampshire. She got a big bill after a colonoscopy. Oh, okay. And reporter Stephanie O'Neill has her story. Let's take a listen. 
For Elizabeth Melville of New Hampshire, staying healthy is a way of life. The 59-year-old is a ski instructor and avid hiker who hopes to stay active for all her remaining decades. And that's why last September, she wasn't about to miss her scheduled colonoscopy. The preventive health screening recommended for most people every 10 years, starting at age 45. The procedure all went very well. The doctor came in and he did mention that they had found a small polyp that they'd removed. A similar thing happened during Melville's first colonoscopy in 2015. Everything turned up normal except for a benign polyp her doctor excised during the screening. Removing these common growths during screenings is standard operating procedure because they can develop into malignant cancers. And it's recommended those with a history of them, like Melville, undergo colonoscopies more frequently every five years. And then five years ended up being during COVID. So she had to wait a bit longer, and during that time, she had moved from Connecticut, where she continues to get most of her medical care. But something like a colonoscopy doing that, that procedure, not something I wanted to travel with. So Melville visited a new doctor near her home in New Hampshire, and she expected the procedure to cost her nothing. That's because under the Affordable Care Act, colonoscopy screenings are zero-cost procedures, meaning patients pay nothing out of pocket. And that's what happened with her first screening. There was no bill. Insurance covered it all. So I just assumed the second one would be the same way. But her provider apparently missed that memo, and instead it billed her insurer more than $10,000. The insurance company negotiated the bill down by more than half, but that still left Melville on the hook for about 2100 bucks. She asked her insurance why she had to pay anything at all. And they said, well, it was initially submitted as screening, and then they resubmitted the bill as diagnostic, and I thought, well, if they must have made a mistake. They've confused me with another patient. But they didn't. Under the federal health law, while a provider can't bill patients for a colon screening, they can bill for a diagnostic treatment. But using a polyp discovered during a colonoscopy as the trigger to shift the cost onto the patient, that didn't sit well with Elizabeth Melville. The whole reason you have a screening colonoscopy is to prevent colon cancer. People that can't afford it, will it stop them from having a colonoscopy to begin with? Since colonoscopy screenings became free to patients nearly 10 years ago, the government has repeatedly informed providers that polyp removal during a screening colonoscopy should not wind up costing patients anything at all. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill. Huh, okay, we're back now with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. And Dr. Rosenthal, I remember this was part of the discussion around the Affordable Care Act when it first came out. So let me ask you, if a colonoscopy does find something, can you be charged for it? Well, according to the government's interpretation of the ACA, there should not be a cost to you even if they do find a polyp. And it has reiterated that point several times. I mean, as Ms. Melville says, the whole point of screening is to see if there's a potentially problematic growth and snip it out for testing to make sure it doesn't evolve into a cancer. Exactly, so why is the patient being charged here? Well, some providers continue to regard it as a kind of gray area, and hey, if the patient doesn't know to protest, the provider gets paid for the charge. Well, I mean, are there times when you could be legitimately charged after a colonoscopy? In some cases, if you're having symptoms, your doctor may order a diagnostic colonoscopy. Yeah, you can be charged for that. Hmm. Or if you're at very high risk, the test can be called diagnostic from the beginning. But it's not okay to change the game in the middle of the test. Like, 
oops, suddenly you owe 2000 Uh-uh. Right. So how often do people get bills like Elizabeth did here? Well, part of the reason we chose to do this one is we do get a number of complaints about colonoscopy charges to bill of the month. The problem is that there are three categories of colonoscopy, screening, diagnostic, even treatment, and where your colonoscopy falls can be a bit in the eye of the beholder. Beholder. And beholder, uh, in this case, is the one who sends you the bill? Yes. And if you're thinking revenue, that may not sound very noble, but it doesn't hurt to try and bill. We do know the government hasn't been doing any enforcement of the rule with hospitals or insurers. So, you know, that kind of leaves the door open. Huh. Okay. Well, what eventually happened to our patient, Elizabeth Melville? Well, as so often happens after our reporter called, the story changed and the hospital said, oh, sorry, it was a mistake. Oh. So good news, she doesn't owe the $2,000. All right, that is a great result for her. So for everyone who does get a colonoscopy, what should they keep in mind in general? I'm going to think about this in 10 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, we cannot do a bill of the month for every colonoscopy in America. So um, <laughs> screening should be at no cost to patients. So ask the practice before you do the dreaded prep for assurance that the test will be billed as screening, even if a polyp is found and biopsied or removed. Ask to see those consent forms before you've done your clean out and don't sign one in which you agree to pay for anything your insurance doesn't cover. People between the ages of 45 and 75 who have no symptoms should be able to get their regular recommended screening colonoscopies for free. Great advice. And to everybody who has a colonoscopy coming up, good luck. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, <laughs> Editor-in-Chief of Kaiser Health News, thank you so much for being with us again today. Thanks for having me. I have one coming up, too. Oh, good luck to you. <laughs> and if you have a bill you think is not quite right, please go to NPR's Shots blog and send it to us. We'd love to hear about it. If the U.S. Supreme Court decides that the right to an abortion is no longer protected by the Constitution, then restrictions will snap into place in many states. That could bring practical consequences for other reproductive health care, especially around miscarriage or when the life of the pregnant person is at risk. There are actual like life and death moments where like a matter of hours makes a huge difference in situations in which... I don't know, legal considerations seem like they shouldn't be at the forefront of anyone's mind when they're making decisions about their own health care. A closer look at what overturning Roe versus Wade may mean for medicine on this afternoon's episode of our daily news podcast, Consider This. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Ion Television Network, LeVar Burton hosts the Scripps National Spelling Bee Finals live Thursday, June 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. 
and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In 1970, Mexican-American families whose children attended Robb Elementary School in Uvalde said that their kids were getting an inferior education, so they staged a walkout. Well, it started in April, and so then we were out of school for the rest of the year. Why the site of last week's mass shootings has been such a point of pride for residents coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the number of swing seats in the U.S. House has reached historic lows. We'll hear what that means for U.S. political parties and for democracy. In many American suburbs, there is little support for renters through tenants groups or through rent control laws. We really stopped investing in our suburbs in the 80s and 90s in nonprofits and social services. We'll have more on why eviction rates are higher in some suburbs than in the cities they surround. And a man who seems to have been disguised as an old woman in a wheelchair threw a piece of cake at the Mona Lisa in Paris. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden met for about an hour today with the Prime Minister of New Zealand, praising her for her country's steps to deal with guns following a 2019 mass shooting. Biden sitting down with Jacinda Ardern to, as he seeks to tighten U.S. gun laws following the mass shooting last week at Uvalde, Texas, that left 19 children and two adults dead. Biden described his meeting with the families of the victims this past weekend. Yesterday, or not the day before, I was up, I was down in Texas, and uh, people sat in a room, about 250 of them in a large room, with me for almost four hours. Not Nobody left. They wanted to air until I spoke to every single person in that room. However, the president will need congressional approval after a white supremacist shot and killed 51 people in Christchurch, New Zealand. Ardern was able to win passage of gun control measures there. The senator leading Democrats' push for gun legislation says he's hearing more interest after reaching out to Senate Republicans over the weekend. Davis Donovan of member station WSHU has more. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut says lawmakers from both sides are talking about supplementing gun control legislation with support for mental health and school security. I have had the football pulled out from under me enough times in these negotiations to be realistic, but we are going to work every single minute of every single day to try to get enough of our Republican colleagues to yes. I hope they are moved by what they have witnessed in the way that the rest of this country has been moved. Murphy was also part of a failed push by Democrats to change gun laws after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting nearly 10 years ago. For NPR News, I'm Davis Donovan in Connecticut. Ukraine's military has launched a counteroffensive in the country's south and now claims some gains. But as NPR's Julian Haidal reports from Kyiv, communication in the rest of the country is down. A spokesman for the Kherson Regional Military Administration says that Russian forces have cut the fiber optic connections between his region and the rest of Ukraine. That means that most people living in Russian-held territory can't access the Internet on their cell phones. Locals have the option to sign up for Internet from Russian-owned telecoms linked to fiber optics in Crimea. That's the peninsula that Russia invaded in 2014. 
Russia denies that they cut the cable to Kherson, accusing the government in Kyiv of undermining alleged local support for the current invasion. Russia's state-owned news agency, TASS, reports Kherson is preparing to become, quote, fully constituent to Russia soon. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Consumers were less confident this month, with Americans' views of their president future economic prospects declining somewhat amid persistent inflation. That's according to the nonprofit business research group, the Conference Board. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped 222 points. The Nasdaq fell 49 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Federal officials say a decades-long effort to clean up PCB contamination in New Bedford Harbor is set to be completed in the next three years. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says the cleanup project is getting $73 million from the new federal infrastructure package. Speaking in New Bedford earlier today, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says that money will help the local economy. And that funding is coming back here in the form of jobs that are going to be created to finish this project, and then the new jobs which will be created along New Bedford Harbor. The federal government estimates the total cost of cleaning up New Bedford Harbor to be about $1 billion. A Rhode Island man charged in a crash that injured nine people in Massachusetts has been ordered held without bail. A judge today ruled that Ryan O'Farrell poses a danger to others. Prosecutors say he was high on drugs and driving without a license when he crashed his SUV into five motorcycles in Northfield in Western Mass on Sunday. They say he was driving with two children in his SUV at the time of the crash. O'Farrell pleaded not guilty to charges. He is due back in court next month. A man with ties to South Boston mobster James Whitey Bulger has pleaded not guilty to a nearly 40-year-old murder. 61-year-old Michael Lewis is being held without bail after his arraignment today. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says the murder of Brian Watson gives us a look back at the time when Boston was corrupt with organized crime and murder. This was gang violence and systematic extortion at an evil high. This was a young father cut down by an environment of fear, fear created by a gang influence by James Whitey Bulger. Watson's body was found in Manchester, New Hampshire. The Attorney General of New Hampshire says while Hollywood glorifies that era, the criminal acts committed back then are still being felt today. Governor Charlie Baker will spend much of the week in San Diego for a conference aimed at inspiring changes in health care. Baker is set to speak tomorrow night during a session focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. Other speakers will include Dr. Anthony Fauci and CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. The governor is expected back in Massachusetts on Friday. In the forecast, clouding up overnight tonight. Temperatures not too far from where they are right now in the mid-50s overnight. Month of June should start up gray. Cloudy skies tomorrow only reaching 60. Thursday still cloudy in the mid-60s tops. 59 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Over the next two weeks, the town of Uvalde, Texas, will bury 21 of its own, 19 children and two teachers killed by a gunman inside Robb Elementary School. The school carries deep importance within Uvalde's Mexican-American community. And NPR's Adrian Florido is in Uvalde and joins us now to talk more about that. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Elsa. So, you know, 
A striking fact about the shooting is that almost all the victims were Mexican-American. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, 90% of the students at Robb Elementary are Latino because Uvalde is an overwhelmingly Mexican-American town. But Elsa, even when Uvalde was a mostly white town, Robb Elementary was known as the School for Mexicans. And it's a school that played a central role in the fight for Mexican-American equality here in Uvalde. Tell us about that history. I'll start with Josue Garza. He goes by George. Good morning. Good morning. I met him at his house a few blocks from Robb Elementary. He's 83 now, but in 1965, he was a brand-new Mexican-American teacher at Robb. It was a typical Mexican school. By which he means it was in bad shape. No landscaping, no playgrounds for the kids. A white principal, he says, who said there was no money for that stuff. They wouldn't pay for a penny for anything. So Mr. Garza started raising money and donations for a basketball court and a running track. And he asked the principal for permission to plant three-foot baby pecan trees. Well, who's going to water them? I'll take care of it, sir. And I assigned three or four trees to every student. And I would give them a quarter for them to water the trees, take care of it, don't let anybody vandalize it. My idea was to make the school look like the white schools. Uvalde in the late 60s was a segregated agricultural town. Its white residents, farmers, and business owners lived on the east side and sent their kids to Dalton Elementary. The Mexicans, many of them farm labor, lived on the west side and sent their kids to rob. In those years, you could drive by Dalton Elementary on the Anglo side of town, and it was beautifully landscaped. The grounds were kept. You know, they had paved driveways. Author Olga Munoz Rodriguez was a young mother in the late 60s. Then you walk to Rob. Uh, it was very obvious that the maintenance of the schools was different. Rob Elementary's principal and almost all of its teachers were white and spoke only English. The parents were all Mexican or Mexican-American. Many spoke only Spanish. So they celebrated George Garza's arrival as a fifth-grade teacher. George Garza was approached by many parents that didn't speak English. And he would go to Mr. Shannon, the principal, and be a translator for the parents. They complained about the school's conditions, about teachers who spanked their children for speaking Spanish. They had lots of complaints. So that was something that the principal was unhappy with. George Garza remembers that the principal started to feel undermined by Garza's efforts to improve the school, and that he finally turned on Mr. Garza when he started taking graduate courses in education. He says, you're a double-crosser. How come you're trying to get your master's degree? You want my job, don't you? Mr. Garza said no, he did not. But as the school year neared its end, he got a letter from the superintendent. It said, It is in the best interest of Rob Elementary School and the Uvalde Independent School District that your contract not be extended. What reason did it give? None. None. Word that he was going to be fired spread through Uvalde's Mexican West Side. On the night the school board was set to finalize the decision, a huge crowd of parents showed up, including Olga Munoz Rodriguez. Of course, I was there. And I'll divulge something that I rarely talk about, but it is so painful. The school board met in a very small room around a very large table, so the, the people that were able to get in were against the wall and just packed real tight. She was packed in next to a white man. And I hear him tell the Anglo person next to him, 
this place is bad enough to get tuberculosis. That night, Rodriguez said, a lot crystallized for Uvalde's Mexican school parents. That's the way they thought about us. They didn't think these parents care about their children or a, a teacher they respect or they want to improve their children's education. They just were Mexicans and we should be worried about being around them. Mr. Garza's son, Ronnie, was a student at Rob and was at that meeting that night. He remembers when the school board took its vote. Six to one, they voted to not renew my dad's contract. The parents walked out, upset, they were devastated. And one lady in the crowd, Manuela Canales, started chanting, walk out, walk out, walk out, walk out. The crowd started chanting that. It was April of 1970, and parents started pulling their children out of school. Mexican students at Uvalde High School walked out, too, some 500 students in all. It started in April, and so then we were, th- we were out of school for the rest of the year. Elvia Perez, then a Uvalde High School senior, became one of the walkout's leaders. They drafted a list of demands. They wanted more Hispanic teachers in Uvalde. She remembers the night protesters went back to the school board to deliver the list. I remember walking across the street, and for some reason I just looked up, and I looked up the barrel of a Texas Rangers rifle. They were on the roof with their rifles pointing down at us. What did that feel like? I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken because I thought, I'm an American citizen from generations, and All of a sudden, we're being treated this way. The walkout lasted six weeks. Volunteers came from San Antonio to tutor children who'd walked out so they wouldn't fall behind. But at the end of the school year, the walkout fizzled out. Although their demands weren't met, Perez says the walkout was a success in another way. Because that's where people began to stand up and to ask that their voices be heard and that their needs be met. After the walkout, one parent filed a federal lawsuit to force Uvalde to desegregate its schools. After years of litigation, she won. The fight to get the district to comply took decades more. Today, Robb Elementary is 90% Latino because that is what this town looks like. Most white people have moved away. But Mr. Garza's son, Ronnie, who's now a Uvalde County commissioner, said, look, now almost all the teachers are Latino too, many born and raised here. So we're growing our own now. We're, you know, we're having people that are born and raised here in Uvalde becoming teachers, role models. Two of those role models, Eva Mireles and Irma Garcia, were murdered in their classroom along with 19 children. And now people in Uvalde are starting to ask a painful question. What will happen to Rob Elementary? Should this symbol of the fight for Mexican-American equality in Uvalde be torn down? It brings Ronnie Garza to tears. I get emotional thinking about that. Olga Munoz Rodriguez says it is painful, but it might be for the best. If I were a parent of one of those children, I would not want to go back to that school. The community will answer that question later. Right now, it's grief. Every day, people bring flowers and stuffed animals to the sprawling memorial growing on the school's front lawn, under the shade of some giant pecan trees, the ones Mr. Garza planted more than 50 years ago because he wanted to make Uvalde's Mexican school more beautiful. The trees are massive now, sturdy, and they are beautiful. 
Adrian Florido, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. the Louvre in Paris yesterday started as a normal day. Museum goers lined up waiting for their turn to take a look at, maybe snap a photo of Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Suddenly, a man disguised as an old woman jumped out of a wheelchair. Shocked bystanders watched as he threw a piece of cake at the bulletproof glass protecting the painting. As security guards are escorting him out, he yells in French, think of the earth. There are people who are destroying the earth. Think about it. Artists tell you, think of the earth. That's why I did this. Luckily, the painting was unharmed. Social media posts showed smeared icing on its glass. This is not the first time the painting has come under attack. The Mona Lisa is kept behind bulletproof glass for a reason. It's safe to say the Mona Lisa has been through a lot. Let's see. So there was apparently one in... 56, sulfuric acid. That's Cami Brothers. She's an associate professor of art history at Northeastern University. She's a specialist on Renaissance art. That acid attack she's describing is why the Mona Lisa is behind glass today. Another person then that same year, for some reason, threw a rock at it and chipped the glass and damaged the painting ever so slightly. Then when it was in Tokyo on tour in 1974, someone sprayed red paint on the glass. Then came 2009 when someone threw hot coffee, shattering the mug, not the glass. So what is it about the Mona Lisa that causes such outbursts? I'm not sure that I feel like there's anything about the painting itself that elicits this reaction. I think it's very much the kind of mystique that is created culturally around it. Whatever his motive, the Associated Press reports that the suspect in yesterday's attack was detained and taken for psychiatric treatment. And as for the Mona Lisa, she's still smiling from behind her glass. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, one week after the Uvalde killings, we hear poet Amanda Gorman. She talks about the power of poetry and shares a new poem. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. And Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The month of May was a roller coaster ride for Wall Street stocks, but the month ended little change for the Dow. Today, the index finished 0.67% lower. That's 223 points. It closed at 32,990. S&P closed down 0.63% to finish at 4132. The Nasdaq fell 0.41% to finish the month at 12,081. 
A biomedical startup with its U.S. headquarters in Cambridge plans to launch a Phase 2B study for a drug combination designed to treat ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. The Boston Business Journal reports Neurosense wants to start the study by July. Neurosense has worldwide headquarters in Tel Aviv. It plans to hire five to ten more people in Cambridge to support the trial. It plans to test the same drug combination in people with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. You're part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Tuesday, June 7th, a week from today at 8.30 a.m. Get details at wbur.org slash open meetings. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The president of the former Soviet Republic of Belarus is the only European leader who supports Russia's war in Ukraine. Pro-democracy activists in Belarus see growing anti-war sentiment in their country as a way to bring down their authoritarian leader. NPR's Joanna Kisses reports from Warsaw. In a sunny classroom in a leafy Warsaw neighborhood, a burly Polish man in army fatigues holds up a tourniquet. So we use this for serious gunshot and shrapnel wounds, he says, or if we have severed limbs because of explosions. An interpreter repeats the instructions for the class, who are all men from the small former Soviet Republic of Belarus. During a break outside, one of the men tells us his name is Artyom and that he's a 34-year-old accountant. He says he and the others are preparing to fight in Ukraine. Why is that important to help the Ukrainians? Because if Ukrainians will lose the fight, we don't have any chance as a country. Artyom won't give his last name, and neither will any of the other recruits who are here to join the Kastas Kalinowski Battalion, an all-Belarusian volunteer brigade in Ukraine. They say they all fear their families could be targeted by the Kremlin, which they say controls Belarus. Pavel Kuchta is one of the brigade's leaders, and he says volunteers are clamoring to fight in Ukraine. He says he receives at least 100 applications a day. We had this motto for our and your freedom, and we are totally in solidarity with Ukrainian people. It's freedom for you and us. Warsaw is a refuge for Belarusians who challenged flawed elections that have kept President Alexander Lukashenko in power. Those pro-democracy activists often meet at a sunny co-working space run by Belarusian dissident Hanna Konievska. We see this difference between old Belarus, Lukashenko's Belarus, and new Belarus. Everybody believes that Belarus can be better. Lukashenko has been in power for more than a quarter century, earning the title Europe's last dictator along the way. His most serious challenge came in 2020, when he declared victory over Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, who ran in place of her husband after Lukashenko jailed him. Tens of thousands 
protested that the election was rigged. Putin lent his support to help quell those protests. We couldn't win. We didn't have enough support, and Lukashenko had support of Putin. Kanievska and other activists say that's why Lukashenko allowed Putin to use Belarus as a staging ground to attack Ukraine. She says she meets displaced Ukrainians in Poland and tells them Belarus is not Lukashenko. That's also the message of a former Belarusian police officer, Alexander Azarov. We want to help Ukrainians to fight against uh, Russians because we think Putin is the only person who supports Lukashenko. And uh, Ukrainian victory against Putin can help us to win against uh, Lukashenko. Azarov runs BIPOL, which stands for the Union of Security Forces of Belarus. It includes former police officers and spies who oppose Lukashenko. Belarus calls them terrorists. I'm in a terrorist list in KGB website. For example, you can find my surname in this list. Azarov tells us that BIPOL has an extensive secret network inside Belarus. This network includes railway workers who helped sabotage Russian efforts to transport equipment and troops through Belarus into Ukraine. We destroyed equipment, railway equipment, and Russian troops can't move for one week. Azarov and Ukrainian officials claim this slowed down Russian forces and helped the Ukrainians defend their capital, Kiev. He says he and other Belarusian dissidents will do whatever it takes to help Ukraine win so that Europe's last dictator will finally lose. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Warsaw. Every 10 years, the 435 congressional districts of the U.S. House of Representatives are redrawn. And every 10 years, the number of seats that could be won by either party shrinks. NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis reports on the decline of swing seats. Politically like-minded Americans are living more tightly clustered together than ever before. And that has made it a whole lot easier for partisans to draw maps with more safe Democratic or safe Republican seats for Congress this year. These two things feed off of each other and compound to absolutely eviscerate the number of swing seats. Dave Wasserman is a nonpartisan election analyst with the Cook Political Report. He estimates these seats, the kind where one party has a narrow advantage of five points or less, will number in the low 30s for the 2022 elections. For comparison, after the 2002 redistricting, there were 124 swing seats and 99 seats after the 2012 redistricting. The more narrow political landscape is affecting how campaign operatives like Dan Constance see this election. It means that there are a lot fewer natural and easy opportunities for us to go win. Constant runs the Congressional Leadership Fund, the top House Republican super PAC. Fewer swing seats means the minority party has to compete in harder districts to win. Republicans are fielding candidates in districts President Biden carried by as much as 15 points. The political environment is so good that we are able to extend much deeper into Democrat-held territory than we ever were before. The precipitous decline in swing seats doesn't necessarily mean control of the House is less competitive. The chambers flip between the two parties four times since 1994, and it's likely to flip again in November. 
Stanford University professor Morris Fiorina says the era of the unshakable majority, like the one Democrats enjoyed for four decades prior to the 1994 Republican wave, are over. Now, the parties are so evenly matched that even though there's very few marginal districts, the Congress could shift even with a much smaller change in seats than it could a generation ago. Fiorina says that results in both parties often misreading the message from voters in these elections because majorities are shifting based off of relatively minor vote shifts. Each new majority says, okay, now we have a mandate. They don't have a mandate. <laughs> the mandate was just, we like you slightly better than the other people. Joshua Graham Lynn runs Represent Us, a nonprofit that advocates for democracy reform. He says fewer swing seats likely translates to an even more ideologically divided Congress. You have a system where all of the competition for any given seat is forced into the primaries, where only a tiny fraction of voters even participate. It's not all bad news, says Kelly Burton. She runs the left-leaning National Democratic Redistricting Committee. She says there are enough seats in play that control of the House will remain competitive for the two parties over the next decade. I think that that is good for democracy. I think you want to see the people in power be determined by the voters themselves and not predetermined by the maps. Swing seats can also evolve over the course of a decade's elections, and there may be no place to go but up from here. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox continue their homestand tonight with game one of a two-game set against the Cincinnati Reds. Michael Walker takes the mound for the Sox at 7-10 against Luis Castillo. Heads up if you're going to be traveling through the Ted Williams Tunnel tonight. The westbound side of the tunnel will be closed from just about midnight until 5 a.m., Highway crews will be installing pavement markings. Drivers will be detoured through the Sumner Tunnel. Truckers may face alternate detours. If you thought you saw a green-yellow dust storm pass by you today, you did. When the wind picked up this morning, it shook loose pollen from trees and carried inland a cloud of pollen thick enough to obscure the horizon. And that's why you may be sneezing, and that's why your car needs a good wash. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. When the shooting happened on Tuesday... You know, one of the first things that we wanted to try and answer was, when did they finally end it? When did they finally kill the gunman? And that fact was not something that they brought out immediately. And so that raised a lot of questions for me. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden met with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen today to talk about the soaring inflation that's cutting into the paychecks of American workers. Biden says inflation is his top priority, and he says he won't interfere with the Federal Reserve's decisions, noting that the central bank has dual responsibilities, full employment and stable prices. Chair Powell and other leaders of the Fed have noted at this moment They have a laser focus on addressing inflation, just like I am. And with a larger complement of board members now confirmed, I know we'll use those tools and monetary policy to address the rising uh, prices for the American people. 
The meeting comes as rising gas, food and consumer goods prices have sent inflation to 40-year highs. The newest federal prison is one of the deadliest and the most dangerous. That's according to an investigation by NPR and the Marshall Project. NPR's Joseph Shapiro has more. Seven men have died violently in the past two years at the U.S. prison at Thompson, Illinois. The violence is a result of multiple problems. Two men forced to live in one tiny cell, often with a cellmate they have reason to fear, and locked down for 23 hours a day or more. Men placed in restraints, including painful four-point restraints where each limb is constrained for hours, even days. Attorney Mark Donatelli represents men charged in federal death penalty cases. This is likely another violence or homicide factory that the Bureau of Prisons is running. The Federal Bureau of Prisons says it can't comment on cases with pending litigation. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 222 points. The Nasdaq down 49. S&P 500 down 26. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some Boston Children's Hospital doctors are outlining steps the federal government could take to reduce childhood gun injuries and deaths. The government has taken similar measures on auto safety. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more. The steps include collecting more information about when children are injured or killed by guns, more research about prevention, and translating that research to gun safety tools. Boston Children's ER physician Lois Lee says guns are more political than vehicles, but clear findings might change behavior as happened with cars. Part of the reason we have been so effective in decreasing injuries and deaths to motor vehicle crashes is because there's a lot of science behind what works. Since we haven't had substantial research funding for firearms, we don't have the science, nor do we have the research. Guns passed cars in 2017 to become the most common injury-related means of death for young people. Lee's comments were recorded by the New England Journal of Medicine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. With the U.S. Supreme Court seemingly poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, a new report gives us a closer look at who has sought out abortions in Massachusetts. The Boston Globe crunched the data based on 2020 statistics. It found black women made up about 20 percent of those who got abortions. About 7 percent of the state population is black. White women got about 46 percent of all abortions in the state. The report also found most of the women who've had abortions are not married, and most of the procedures in the state, about 73 percent, are performed before eight weeks gestation. Boston police are warning they've seen an increase in social media posts of people who say they had their drinks at bars or nightclubs spiked by someone. Boston police spokesman John Boyle says spiked drinks can leave the victim vulnerable to being taken advantage of. He's asking everyone to pay attention to what's happening around them. It's not only uh, victims being aware of their surroundings, but witnesses, uh, people at bars, if they see anybody acting uh, differently or if they see anybody reaching over someone's glass to report it to the bartender and call the police. Boyle says if you think your drink might have been spiked, get help immediately and do call the police. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. In the forecast, the last day in May looks like it's really the last sunny day for a while. Clouds move in tonight down around 54 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a lot cooler, topping out at 60. Thursday, cloudy again, up in the mid-60s. Not too much of a change for Friday. In the Boston area, 58 degrees now at 535.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The verdict is in. The first courtroom test for special counsel John Durham has ended in an acquittal. Now, as a reminder, it was the Trump administration appointed Durham to investigate suspected wrongdoing at the FBI. The defendant, Michael Sussman, addressed reporters outside the federal courthouse in Washington today. Despite being falsely accused... I'm relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in my case. And PR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson was among those reporters outside the courthouse. She's here with us now. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, remind us who Sussman is, what the central question here was. Michael Sussman's a Washington lawyer and former Justice Department prosecutor who's represented Democrats. The special counsel had accused him of lying to the FBI in September 2016 when he met with the FBI's general counsel. Sussman said he wanted to share a tip about questionable links between the Trump organization and a Russian bank. And prosecutors working with the special counsel, John Durham, said Sussman was trying to influence the outcome of the presidential election in 2016 by using the FBI for political purposes. Now, Sussman lawyers told the jury he didn't lie about whether he organized the meeting on behalf of Democratic clients and that even if he did, it didn't matter anyway, didn't change the way the FBI investigated. I will note that the trial ran for two weeks, but the jury deliberated for only a few hours. Do we know what influenced their thinking? Well, I caught up with the forewoman of the jury outside the courthouse after the verdict. She didn't want to give me her name, but she said basically that the case didn't seem to amount to much. She said, quote, I feel like we could have spent our time more wisely. And then she said it was the government's job to prove it. And I think they succeeded in some and in others they failed. It didn't pan out in the government's favor, she said. And that's on them. Huh. I want to ask about something you wrote over the weekend, that this case could be considered a test of John Durham's legacy. Explain. Yeah, current and former government lawyers have been very critical of the Sussman prosecution, saying that others wouldn't have brought this case in the first place. And defense lawyers Sean Berkowitz and Michael Bosworth were even more blunt. They said this was a case of prosecutorial overreach and that politics is no substitute for evidence. Sussman, their client, has had a hard time since his indictment last year. He left his law firm and has been out of work. And his elderly mom and his wife and kids have been at the courthouse nearly every day. They were nearby when Sussman made a statement to reporters. Here's more of what he said outside that courthouse. As you can imagine, this has been a difficult year for my family and me. But right now, we are just grateful for the love and support of so many during this ordeal. And I'm looking forward to getting back to the work that I love. So that's Sussman speaking. Any word today, Carrie, from John Durham from the special counsel? 
Well, after the verdict, Durham stood inside the nearly empty courtroom and checked messages on his phone. Later, he issued a written statement. He thanked his agents and investigators, and he thanked the jury for their service, but he said he was disappointed in the outcome of this case. This trial was the first for Durham, who was appointed in the Trump administration, to examine the investigators who investigated uh, the former president and Russia. And the former President Trump had hoped Durham would find something shady or dodgy. Mm -hmm. But so far, over three years, Durham has turned up very little. And PR's Carrie Johnson, thanks for your reporting on this. Happy to be here. Evictions in some once affordable suburbs are on the rise. During the pandemic, people looking for more space left high-priced cities like San Francisco and moved to the burbs, pushing out lower-income renters there. Aaron Baldessari from member station KQED reports. Hola, ¿cómo está? Bien, gracias. Carmen Ponce lives in a small one-bedroom apartment on the ground floor of a two-story building in Antioch. It's a commuter town, about an hour's drive northeast of San Francisco. Immediately when you walk in, you see these big plastic bins stacked on top of each other, ready in case she needs to leave. Ponce lives here with her teenage daughter and one-year-old granddaughter. They've been in limbo ever since she got an eviction notice last August. Ponce cuts hair at a barbershop in a town nearby and was out of work for about a year because of the pandemic. She fell behind on the $1,300 she pays in rent every month. She says it was a really difficult time. She was able to survive off savings. Ponce says it's depressing, but she knows there are a lot of people in Antioch going through the same thing. During the pandemic, Antioch had the highest eviction rate in the San Francisco Bay Area, a rate 22 times higher than in Oakland, California, according to Sheriff Lockout data analyzed by KQED. We've had this story that's been told to us that the suburbs is the place of white picket fences, and that has been true, but it's never been the entire story. Chris Schild is the director of the Regional Suburban Organizing Project. Across the country, suburbs are home to the largest and fastest-growing population of people living in poverty, according to research from the Brookings Institution. And since 2010, more than half of all black and brown U.S. residents, as well as immigrants, live in suburbs. So we need to look at and understand what's happening in suburban places like Antioch in order to understand what's happening in, in this country. Researchers from Princeton's Eviction Lab found that in one out of every six metropolitan areas they studied, Evictions were higher in the suburbs than in the cities they surround, places like Boston, Houston, and Seattle. But Schilt says suburban governments aren't well prepared to support these residents. We really stopped investing in our suburbs in the 80s and, and 90s in community infrastructure, in nonprofits, in social services, in our schools. That includes little support for renters, like tenants' rights groups or rent control laws. But in Antioch, at least, that's starting to change. Renters here have begun to organize, and for the first time, they're demanding new policies to protect them. Hi, can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. My name is Jackie Lowry, and I'm a resident of Antioch, a renter. Lowry showed up at a city council meeting earlier this year to ask for a cap on yearly rent increases, laws to make it illegal for landlords to harass tenants, and to make it harder for landlords to evict. My family and I moved to Antioch for a better life. But from what I've been seeing in our city with our tax-paying, rent-paying citizens, shameful. You have a rental community in Antioch that needs your help right now. 
But these proposals are getting stiff pushback from local landlords. Mark Jordan is a real estate broker in Antioch who owns four rental properties. He also manages other rentals for clients. They use that as income to pay their bills. And most of them are not fabulously wealthy. They're just mom and pop people that we manage houses for. He says he supports measures to hold bad landlords accountable. But the city already has a code enforcement team to do just that. And Jordan says he rarely evicts his tenants. It's ugly. It's time-consuming. You lose money. If these tenants' rights measures do pass, Jordan says he'll consider selling his properties in Antioch and buying somewhere else, which could make the housing market even harder for renters like Carmen Ponce. Ponce isn't sure where she and her family would live if their eviction goes forward. She worries their only option would be her car. For NPR News, I'm Erin Baldessari in Antioch, California. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had ripple effects for life across Europe, including the schedule for the run-up to the World Cup, which kicks off in November in Qatar. Tomorrow, a big match, Ukraine versus Scotland. They are playing in Glasgow, so home pitch advantage to the Scots. Although we wondered if even the most patriotic of Scots can find it in their hearts to root against Ukraine these days. The question I'm going to put now to Alan Patello. He is a sports writer at the Scotsman newspaper, and he joins us now from Edinburgh. Alan, hey there. Hi, yeah. Good evening, everyone. Hi. So how are people in Scotland feeling about the game? I mean, I know you can't root against your national team, but this is a tough one. No, it is. It's a, a particularly awkward assignment, I think, for the the Scottish national team for the Scotland manager, Steve Clark. And he was obviously asked this question, how does he feel um, about what promises to be such an emotional night at Hampden Park tomorrow? And mm. um, he answered by saying he urged the fans to respect the Ukrainian national anthem, to cheer it and applaud it. Steve Clark just asked that it will be respected. <laughs> of course, sometimes when Scotland are playing other opponents, you know, sometimes you do find the national anthem being jeered. Sometimes, you know, the, the fans are trying to create quite an intimidating atmosphere. But I think tomorrow night, I think you can be rest assured that every Scottish fan there at Hampden Park will be standing and respectfully observing the Ukrainian anthem. And just to be clear, only one team goes through. Whoever wins then plays Wales. Is that next? That's right. The winners will play Wales in Cardiff on Sunday night. It's a huge prize for Scotland because all wrapped up in this whole debate is the fact Scotland, who used to routinely qualify for World Cups back in the 70s and 1980s, Scotland haven't qualified for one since 1998. So there's huge anticipation on the part of the Scotland fans that they now stand just two steps away from uh, this great goal. But I'm so glad you're pointing that out because whoever the opponent was, this is a huge game for Scotland for national pride. 
yes, of course, it, it really is. I can't overstate how much the country is yearning, is is aching to to reach another World Cup. So much is wrapped around it. Our, our footballing heritage, our, our our footballing reputation is is staked on this really, and 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 reaching Qatar. And I think fans will think the players and team really do deserve to get there. Um, they are unbeaten in eight games and. Um, a lot of a hope is currently wrapped up in, in the Scotland team and I think it's people will think this is the best chance of qualifying for a World Cup in a, in a generation. What about the Ukraine team? Uh, war must have impacted their ability to train for this. Yes, that's right. Um, at least well, several of the team won't have played a competitive football match since the end of, of last year, if you can believe it. So they have been in Slovenia trying to get fit. But there are there are one or two players who have been playing in Europe. They've obviously been playing up until just last week or two weeks ago. So they will clearly be, be match fit. But there's several who are not and who have been, um, in some cases, stranded in Ukraine for, for many, many weeks um, following the Russian invasion in, in, in February. Well, I will note the odds are uh, Scotland is favoured to win. Um And I will end by saying I wish you both good luck. Good luck to your team. Good luck to Ukraine. May the best team win. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've been speaking with Alan Patillo, sports writer at The Scotsman. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, James Spooner's graphic memoir, The High Desert, and then poet Amanda Gorman. Game 50 of the season for the Red Sox is tonight at Fenway Park. They face the Reds for a quick two-game set. Michael Walker will pitch against Luis Castillo, 7-10 game time. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, a beautiful day today. Clouds should move in tonight. The off chance of a shower falling just a bit to the mid-50s. And then cooler weather sticks around through the rest of the work week. Tomorrow should only reach about 60 for a high, lots of clouds, maybe some afternoon showers. Thursday, clouds return. Temperatures make it to the mid-60s. And not much change for Friday, cloudy and coolish. It is 59 degrees in the Boston area at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. When the shooting happened on Tuesday, you know, one of the first things that we wanted to try and answer was when did they finally end it? When did they finally kill the gunman? And that fact was not something that they brought out immediately. And so that raised a lot of questions for me. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. For James Spooner, punk rock is more than just some genre of music or a look or even an attitude. In fact, it suffuses much of his life. 
He's a tattoo artist, and he directed the 2003 documentary Afropunk, exploring the roles of African Americans in the then overwhelmingly white punk scene in the U.S. And he co-founded the Afropunk Festival. Now he can add graphic memoirist to that list. His new book is The High Desert, Black, Punk, Nowhere. As NPR's Mallory Yu reports in it, he tells the story of how he discovered punk music and through it, his identity. There's a scene early in James Spooner's memoir where he's alone, surrounded by boxes in his new bedroom in a new town, feeling particularly sorry for himself. So he puts on a cassette tape. As he looks at a picture of the friends and crush he left behind, lyrics to Black Flag's depression splash across the panel. There's no girls that want to touch me. I don't need your sympathy, you know? And of course, that's going to resonate with a 13-year-old. Especially as a teenager who'd just been moved to Apple Valley, a small town in the California desert, finding himself one of the few black kids in his high school, a misfit. I had the typical teenaged angst that is common in most kids, but there were underlying things happening in my family. My, my parents were divorced. You know, I grew up witnessing abuse and just things that, like, probably I kept bottled up. Punk was a great soundtrack for that. Spooner was mostly estranged from his dad, and he was starting to resent his mother, who, as a white woman, was well-meaning, but couldn't really understand her son's experience as a black teen. On his first day at his new school, Spooner meets Ty. Ty was black, like him, and a punk rocker. The first punk I met was black, but he was struggling with some of the same identity issues that I was um, because we lived in this small town with so few people of color who were involved in anything alternative. Spooner says befriending Ty gave him a kind of permission to be himself. And the book follows that transformation when he shaved his head into a mohawk went from wearing skater tees and sneakers to leather jackets and combat boots, picked up a guitar for the first time. Spooner says it was fun, but kind of superficial. I wasn't political. I was just like a dumb 80s kid wearing these clothes because the other kids were wearing these clothes. And I was ripping my t-shirt because I saw it on whatever video was available to me at the time. Eventually, though, he started hearing more. The things that really, like, got me excited after the initial shock of, like, a mohawk wears off was the politics. Then he visited New York for Christmas break and found a whole new kind of punk scene. I started meeting really smart kids who were getting involved with Riot Girl, or uh, would take me to the communist bookstore, sharing zines with me. They talked about feminism and denounced racism and homophobia, introduced him to veganism, and some of them were even black, like him. Meeting black punks who weren't compromising their blackness for their punkness, it, it, it blew my mind. I just, I needed an example, you know? 
it really like forged the path that my entire life took from that point on. The punk subculture helped James Spooner find belonging and his politics, and he hopes his book will help other misfits find their people too. I think that what they'll get from this book is a celebration of like otherness, a celebration of feeling validated and not alone. So you can embrace it too. Mallory Yu, NPR News. It has been one week since the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Americans reacted in all sorts of ways, from hugging their kids a little tighter to hitting the streets to protest. While many struggle to find the right words, that is the job of our next guest. My name is Amanda Gorman. I'm 24 years old, and I'm a poet. After the Buffalo shooting at a grocery store in a black neighborhood, Gorman started to share lines from a previously published poem on social media. Her call to action was to send money to every town for gun safety. She's raised over a million dollars so far. But she's also been working on a new poem, one grounded in hope. I think in moments like this, I am hopeful, but I'm actually more stubborn than hopeful, meaning that I'm bringing my obstinance, my strong will, my beating heart. I know there are forces in this world which would revel and celebrate and throw a party for my powerlessness. And they win unless I continue to show up every day and do what I know to be right. Here is Amanda Gorman's new poem, Hymn for the Hurting. Everything hurts, our hearts shadowed and strange, minds made muddied and mute. We carry tragedy, terrifying and true, and yet none of it is new. We knew it as home, as horror, as heritage. Even our children cannot be children, cannot be. Everything hurts. It's a hard time to be alive and even harder to stay that way. We're burdened to live out these days while at the same time blessed to outlive them. This alarm is how we know we must be altered, that we must differ or die, that we must triumph or try. Thus, while hate cannot be terminated, it can be transformed into a love that lets us live. May we not just grieve, but give. May we not just ache, but act. May our signed right to bear arms never blind our sight from shared harm. May we choose our children over chaos. May another innocent never be lost. Maybe everything hurts, our hearts shadowed and strange, but only when everything hurts, may everything change. For more of Gorman's poetry, be sure to listen to the next Code Switch episode, available tomorrow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, 
working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. From Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is WBUR. Some clouds move in tonight. Winds die down. Temperatures pull back to the mid-50s. Not much warmer than that tomorrow. Only about 60 degrees with overcast skies. Maybe a late afternoon shower. It is 57 degrees now in the Boston area at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm. Organic summer farm chairs with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Cambridge, Somerville, J.P., Newton, and more. RedFireFarm.com. And Red's Best with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. RedsBest.com. I'm senior business reporter Zeninjor Enwameka, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia continues to push deeper into eastern Ukraine in a race against time. It wants to capture the industrial region of Donbass before more western armaments arrive to fortify Ukraine's forces. Meanwhile, the cities and towns from which Russian troops have retreated are regaining a sense of normalcy. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, red flag laws remove guns from owners who pays a danger to themselves or others, and there is evidence they reduce the suicide rate. As a clinician, thinking about an intervention, that's really effective. But proving those laws prevent mass shootings is more difficult. More Cubans are leaving the country than ever before as the island faces its worst economic downturn in decades. These stories and Bob Mondello coming up, it's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden met today with Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell as the administration works to combat record high inflation. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports today's meeting is the first since Powell was renominated and confirmed to lead the central bank for a second term. President Biden says the Fed will play a key role in bringing down the highest inflation rates in the United States in more than 40 years. Biden's top economic advisor, Brian Deese, says respecting the central bank's independence will be critical during this period. The president underscored to Chair Powell Uh, consistently, including today, that he respects the independence of the Federal Reserve and will provide the Federal Reserve the space and the independence that it needs. Inflation has shown signs of moderating, but is likely to remain far above the Fed's 2% target through the end of this year. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The jury has acquitted Washington lawyer Michael Sussman of lying to the FBI. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the verdict is a blow to the special counsel John Durham, appointed under the Trump administration to investigate the FBI's conduct in the lead-up to the 2016 election. Jurors in Washington, D.C. deliberated for about six hours before delivering the unanimous verdict, not guilty. The special counsel team accused Michael Sussman of lying to the FBI and trying to deliver an October surprise that would change the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Outside the courthouse, the jury forewoman said, I think we could have spent our time more wisely. It didn't pan out in the government's favor, and that's on them. Sussman told reporters that despite being falsely accused, he's relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in the case. The special counsel thanked the jury for their service and said he's disappointed in the result. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. More countries are joining the international investigation team looking into war crimes in Ukraine. Terry Schultz reports individual governments in the International Criminal Court are coordinating efforts in The Hague. Ukraine's chief prosecutor, Irina Venediktova, says she's reassured by all the support. I hope that with my international colleagues, we can speak about justice. Because what we need now, all people on our planet, we need justice. We want accountability. Benediktova was in The Hague meeting other members of the joint investigation team, gathering evidence of alleged atrocities committed in Ukraine. So far, that group includes her office, the International Criminal Court, Lithuania and Poland, and now Estonia, Latvia and Slovakia. They all agree to pool evidence being collected by investigators and store it with the EU's Judicial Coordination Agency, Eurojust, making it available to the various prosecutions underway. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow dropped 222 points. The Nasdaq was down 49 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is distributing one-time $3,000 grants to every licensed family-based child care provider in the city. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says 459 providers will get grants funded through the Federal American Rescue Plan Act to help stabilize their business. State data show Boston had a net loss of 30 family-based child care centers during the pandemic. The Center for Coastal Studies says its response team has successfully disentangled a humpback whale off the coast of Chatham. The nonprofit says the private boat spotted a private boat spotted the whale and her calf east of Chatham Harbor yesterday. They say the mother was in poor condition. It was entangled in thick rope and likely had been for months. A response team used a specially designed grappling hook to cut the ropes from the humpback. Former Beatle Ringo Starr's show this week at the Boston Wang Theater is sold out, but you can view his visual art there for the next three days for free. Starr's art will be on view and open to the public starting tonight, right alongside original art from Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and George Harrison. Box Center President and CEO Joe Spaulding says they've been hosting this show for five years. At the Wang Theater Box Center, we are, in fact, the largest seller of original uh, Ringo Starr artwork in the world. All proceeds from the art sale go to charity. If you want to see the Celtics take on the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals at the TD Garden, it'll cost you. An analysis by the ticketing company Logitix shows the average price of a sold ticket on the secondary market is currently above $1,700. 
The average price of a ticket to the Chase Center in San Francisco is $57 more. Boston police are also warning fans about fake tickets being circulated. They say people should only buy tickets from official vendors. The NBA Finals start Thursday in San Francisco. Celtics host uh, the home game, the first home game, next Wednesday. And you may have been clearing your throat or using a few extra tissues today as a pollen storm blew through much of the state. WBR's Dave Epstein tells us what triggered it. Did you notice it during the morning and early afternoon, all that pollen in the air? That was all caused by the pine releasing its pollen across eastern Massachusetts. Combined with the fact that we had this backdoor cold front come in from the east, it really made like a line of pollen. It actually showed up on radar. We could see it moving westward, and it moved all the way out to the Connecticut River Valley. Interestingly, although you see the pine pollen, most of us are actually not allergic to it. Dave says there was also a little bit of smoke in the air adding to the haze. In the forecast, cloudy skies overnight tonight falling to the mid-50s. Month of June starts up with clouds. Lots of clouds tomorrow should only reach 60. Thursday, cloudy still in the mid-60s tops. 58 degrees now in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it attacked on three fronts from the north, from the south, and from the east. Ukraine, as we know, fought back hard. Russia scaled back, but it is still pressing a major offensive in eastern Ukraine. Meanwhile, head west to places like Kiev, and life is regaining a sense of normalcy. We're going to talk through these dual realities with NPR's Ryan Lucas who is in eastern Ukraine, and NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in the capital in Kiev. Hi, you two. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi there. All right, Ryan, you begin. Let's start in the east. Where are you in Donbass? And just paint me a picture. What does it look like? So I am in a town called Pokrovsk, uh, and it's not that far from the main fighting front uh, of Donbass at this point in time. Uh, a lot of civilians here have already fled west. The big Soviet-era apartment blocks in Pokrovsk uh, are pretty much dark at night. You only see one or two windows with lights on in any given building. Most shops are closed. Some towns have sporadic power and gas and water. In others, all three of those have been cut. And the war is really an ever-present thing here, not in an abstract way. We were woken up our first morning here by a missile strike that shook the windows and doors in our hotel room. And as you drive further east on the roads, closer to the front, Pretty much all of the traffic is military, so tanks, armored personnel carriers, troop carriers, stuff like that. And in towns like Bakhmut and Kramatorsk, uh, you hear the heavy boom of outgoing and incoming artillery and rockets pretty much all day and all night. All right, so artillery and rockets all day, all night. That's the soundtrack in the east. Greg, where you are in the capital, what's life like there? Because Russian troops got very close, but then pulled back, and that was weeks ago. Yes, that's absolutely true. So it's a completely different scene from a couple months ago when the capital was really in lockdown mode. We're having some beautiful spring days. The parks are overflowing with families. Cafes are packed. And yes, we do see some long lines here. But now most people are waiting for ice cream. <laughs> uh, there are a few signs of war. Uh, soldiers are mixed in with the civilian crowds. We still get the occasional air raid sirens, which are widely ignored. And, you know, Mary Louise, almost all countries at war do have these dual realities. 
Places like eastern Ukraine, where Ryan is, 400 miles from the capital, where people are fearing for their lives, losing their lives, and places like Kiev, where people are relatively safe and just trying to get on with their lives. It's so striking. It sounds in a strange way like it's back, <laughs> somewhat like the way things were when I was there right before the war, late January, start of February. Kiev felt very normal. Cafes packed. People were out ice skating. And then when we went farther east, same thing. You heard gunfire. Um, you saw military vehicles on the road. I am curious, Greg, just take me slightly outside Kiev to the suburbs that we heard so much about, like Bucha, where there was just absolute devastation. What does that look like today? Yeah, there's a remarkable cleanup going on, and the rebuilding is well underway. I mean, you're just about 20 minutes or so outside of Kiev when you go there, and I'm sure many of our listeners recall the photos of all those burned-out Russian tanks, the mangled civilian cars. The, the bodies in the streets. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, several hundred by, by Ukrainian count. Um, this is all gone now. We drove around the town on the completely cleaned-up streets. All those burned-out vehicles have been towed to junkyards outside Bucha, the chewed-up streets have all been repaired. We have also seen pictures, though, of giant apartment blocks bombed out, destroyed. Where are people living? Yeah, the, the housing shortage is definitely the biggest problem, but there is some progress. Poland has donated prefabricated dormitories. They're being set up on school playgrounds, in parking lots. People should be moving in soon. At City Hall, my NPR colleague, Julian Haida, and I met Jana Rahovitz. She's 55, and her home was damaged. She's staying at the home of relatives who went abroad, and she considers herself lucky. I think no matter what the situation is, uh, I will not end up on the street, even if that means we will be living in tight quarters, uncomfortable quarters at the very least. We have family that we're able to depend on, and there are most certainly people here in the city who are in a worse situation. So I don't want to overstate the recovery. Many parts of Bucha, as we've seen, are completely gutted, but it's very much coming back to life, and it has a distinctive soundtrack. The pounding of hammers, screeching buzz saws, and the grinding of power drills. Oh, it's a very different soundtrack to what I was hearing in the East even before the war. Ryan, what, what, just the state of the war, what is, what is the state of play on the battlefield where you are? Well, it's not great for Ukraine, frankly. Uh, we talked to several soldiers who said that they had received just two weeks of training before being sent out, out east here to fight. Uh, they say that they're ill-equipped and ill-prepared for the battle. They do acknowledge that that's not the case with every Ukrainian unit, of course. Some are well-equipped and well-trained. Uh, but one constant refrain that we heard from fighters out here is that Ukraine needs more heavy weapons. They say the Russians are following classic tactics out here. They're pounding an area with artillery and rockets and airstrikes and then moving forward with tanks and troops, and then they do that all over again. And the Ukrainians say that they have very little heavy weaponry to hit back with. The howitzers that the U.S. have provided are helping, but they need more of them, the Ukrainians say. And now the White House may announce as soon as tomorrow that it's going to provide longer-range rocket systems for the Ukrainians, which is something that they've been begging for, but Ukrainians say time is of the essence. The clock is really ticking out here. What about just the calculation for civilians, Ryan? The, the should I stay, do I want to fight for my country, or do I go try to get my family to safety? What are you hearing from people? Well, a lot of people here have left. Uh, for those who have stayed, though, things are getting increasingly difficult. One woman that we talked to only gave her first name, Olga. Uh, she said much of Severodonetsk is destroyed. She had just fled the city. Uh, but like many people here, she seemed to have this 
ability to deal with these horrible circumstances and things that are going on and yet retain her sense of humor. She was sitting in the back of an ambulance waiting to be evacuated when we were talking to her, and the air raid siren was wailing in the background. And as it turns out, her 69th birthday was the following day. And she teased us about it. She said, where's my cake? Why don't you have chocolate? She just (laughs) laughed. But at the same time, there's this immense amount of sadness and grief. Uh, And one thing that has stuck with me was as we were saying goodbye to her, she started tearing up thinking about her home and her city, which she doesn't know when she'll ever see again. And she repeated this one line over and over. On every street, she says, there were roses and chestnut trees. Roses and chestnut trees. Ah, what a beautiful and what a heartbreaking image. That is Ryan Lucas reporting in eastern Ukraine and NPR's Greg Myrie reporting in Kyiv. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. In the wake of the mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo, red flag laws are being cited as a way to cut down on gun deaths in the U.S. These are laws that allow the removal of guns when there is a risk of violence. They're on the books in 19 states. NPR's Martin Costi talked to researchers investigating whether they work. These are sometimes called extreme risk protection orders, and the idea is to temporarily take guns away from people identified as a risk to others or to themselves. And when it comes to self-harm, the studies show that they work. Garen Wintemute is director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at UC Davis Health, and he says for every 10 to 20 red flag orders that are issued, you reduce the total number of suicides by one. As a clinician, thinking about an intervention That's really effective. But when it comes to preventing mass shootings, the numbers aren't so clear. And that's because mass shootings are statistically more rare than suicides, says April Zioli, who studies the effect of gun laws. So being able to say, this year you didn't have any mass shootings, and that's because of extreme risk protection orders, is difficult because you may not have had any anyway. Still, researchers are trying to get a handle on this. Zioli is collecting data on outcomes in six of the red flag states. And one thing she can already say is that the laws are used unevenly. Some states just out of the gate had quite a lot of extreme risk protection order petitions filed. Florida is an example of that. She thinks that's because Florida passed its red flag law in the wake of the school shooting in Parkland and people were more aware of it. Another factor is who gets to petition for the orders. Early versions of the laws limited that to police, but more recently states have added family members to the list and even unrelated people living in the gun owner's household. There's also the question of whether the local criminal justice system is prepared for this process. In the very beginning, we had law enforcement showing up, I remember, at like a district court and did not have any luck trying to figure out how to do it. Kim Wyatt is with the county prosecutor's office in Seattle, where she's part of an interagency unit that follows up on gun orders. She says getting prosecutors, courts, and police working together has led to the recovery of about 200 firearms a year under the state's five-year-old red flag law. You need people to figure out the process of how you do the actual petition, what is the process to get it to the court, and then really to focus legal advisors or prosecutors that can guide on the enforcement part, too. There is, of course, a fear that red flags might be abused, that, say, a vengeful ex-spouse might lie to get someone's gun taken away. In a paper that looks at how the law works in Oregon, researcher April Zioli says she did not find a pattern of that. 
She says more than 90% of the petitions ended up being approved by judges. If the respondent is filing it in a vengeful way and there is no evidence, then the judge can charge them with a crime. Still, red flag laws are controversial. Gun rights groups call them a threat to the gun owner's right to due process. There's no such law in Texas, the site of the latest school massacre by a troubled 18-year-old. And given this reality, Aaron Kivisto says it's important to keep other tools in mind. Legislative means aren't the only means to help reduce people's risk. Kivisto is a psychologist at the University of Indianapolis who's followed the evolution of red flag laws. He says the data we have so far show the importance of intervention, even if it's informal. You know, family members or or close friends in the community who might store the gun during a time of crisis. You know, it's law enforcement doesn't need to be involved in every case to have the same general outcome of separating somebody from a firearm. Martin Costi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. May was a roller coaster ride for Wall Street stocks, but the month ended a little changed on the Dow. Today, the index finished 0.67% lower. That's 223 points. It closed at 32,990. S&P closed down 0.63% to finish at 4132. The Nasdaq fell 0.41% to finish the month at 12,081. Details coming up in 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. A biomedical startup with U.S. headquarters in Cambridge plans to launch a Phase 2B study for a drug combination designed to treat ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. The Boston Business Journal reports Neurosense wants to start the study by July. Neurosense has worldwide headquarters in Tel Aviv. It plans to hire five to ten more people in Cambridge to support the trial. It also plans to test the same drug combination on people with Parkinson's and with Alzheimer's. Join WBR this Thursday for the Moth Main Stage, featuring five luminaries who'll tell stories based on the theme Past Tense, Future Perfect. Tickets are at wbur.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Still pretty lovely out there, but clouds move in tonight. The off chance of showers falling to the mid-50s, not too far from where it is right now. And then cooler weather sticks around through the rest of the work week. Tomorrow, about 60 for high with lots of clouds, maybe some afternoon showers. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Cubans are coming to the U.S. in numbers not seen in decades. In April, nearly as many Cuban migrants were apprehended at the U.S. southwest border as in all of last year. This as Cuba is facing its worst economic downturn in decades. And as NPR's Carrie Kahn reports from Havana, Cubans are selling everything they have to fund their way off the island. This 38-year-old man gives me a tour of his one-bedroom home that's up for sale. 
It's a low-slung concrete house outside Havana, just blocks from the beach. I'm only using his name Marco. He says he'll face repercussions from the government if he talks about his plans to leave the island. He'll throw in the mattress, the refrigerator, and washing machine, too. Everything is for sale. Everything. Marco lost his job during the pandemic. He's an architect. But he says the economic situation got even worse last year when the government made the Cuban peso its sole legal currency. Inflation has soared, so has the black market, and government control of everything, he says. He knows life will be hard starting over. Pero por lo menos lo intenté. Aquí no puedo intentarlo, nada. But at least I'll have tried. Here I can't even do that, he says. He was asking 15000 for the house. He'll now take eight. $8,000. It's fishing season now, says this real estate broker in Havana. He asked only to be identified as Alfredo so he could speak freely about his work. He sells everything in dollars and all transactions take place outside Cuba. All of Cuba is on sale now, he says. So if on one block there's 24 houses, 20 of them are up for sale. The other four, he says, are considering selling. <laughs> it's no lie, he laughs. He has more than 2,000 listings available. The government blames Cuba's dismal economy and the current exodus on the U.S., not just the decades-long U.S. embargo, but also tough Trump-era sanctions still in place. Tourism has tanked, especially during the pandemic, and Cuba can't find the cash to buy vital goods. Everything from basic food to fuel oil. Una fruta, un mango, mil por ciento. Voy a comprar carne, mil por ciento. A piece of fruit like a mango now costs 1,000% more. Meat also 1,000% more, says Cuban economist Omar Everleni. Entonces, hay una diferencia muy marcada en la sociedad entre los que viven. So now there is a marked distinction in society between those living on a state salary, just raised to about $50 a month, and those who get help from relatives abroad, he says. Inequality in communist Cuba is growing. And those who can are leaving. Lines outside foreign embassies are long. This woman, who asked to be identified only by her first name, Maria, gets a call from her husband while waiting in a Havana park by the Panamanian embassy. She's afraid to talk about plans to get off the island. The couple is trying to get a transit visa to Panama. Then we'll head to Nicaragua and look for work, she says. Visa requirements there were just lifted for Cubans who head straight north to the U.S. border. Leading the exodus are Cuba's youth. In the hallway of a rundown building in Old Havana, a group of teens are twerking and rapping before a video camera. This 18-year-old who uses the stage name El Chulito says he wants more opportunities. He doesn't want to give his name or talk politics. He says it's about music, and the only economy for that is beyond Cuba. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Havana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Top Gun Maverick cruised to a Memorial Day record this weekend, $156 million. Now that is good news for a pandemic-battered film industry, but there is one aspect of the way these numbers are reported that has critic Bob Mondello quietly muttering to himself. Movie box office figures used to be something that only people in the movie industry cared about. In the early 1970s, when The Godfather became the first film to make $10 million in a single week... This is business, not personal, Sonny! No one reported that fact. Well, then business will have to suffer. Except Variety and a few other trade papers, so there was no incentive to inflate the numbers by folding so-called preview showings into the opening day. The term preview was adapted from Broadway, where actors need to play a show a few times before critics arrive, Back in the Dark Ages, these were reduced-price previews, a quaint notion. Anyway, it wasn't a cash grab, it was a theatrical necessity. That does not apply to movies, obviously, and for decades, an opening date was an opening date. Take the film franchise that put Memorial Day weekend on the map. In 1977, Star Wars premiered nationally on just 32 screens, selling virtually every seat for every show, while a blindsided 20th Century Fox scrambled to strike more prints. Numbers were big, but limited by theater capacity, and headlines mostly talked about how the film stayed at number one week after week for the rest of the summer. By the time Star Wars Return of the Jedi opened on a thousand screens in 1983... You may dispense with the pleasantries, Commander. I'm here to put you back on schedule. Theater owners were ready, some cramming 24 hours worth of showings into that opening day by starting at one minute past midnight. I worked for a chain of movie theaters back then, and I remember those first shows sold to the rafters, fans synchronizing watches and counting down to the start. Nobody jumped the gun, though. That would have been cheating. In 1989, the clock started creeping backwards. Warner Brothers allowed theaters to start opening day Batman screenings, not at midnight, but at 10 p.m. the night before. In 1992, for Batman Returns, they allowed them at 9 p.m. and got some pushback, so the big movie of 1993 went back to 10 p.m. Thursday previews. Welcome to Jurassic Park. But by 1996, Independence Day had made it 6 p.m. Welcome to Earth. And after that, well, if your film had a substantial want-to-see-first factor, previews became standard. Fans got used to booking night before opening seats for Hunger Games, Mission Impossible, Harry Potter, Black Panther, Fast and Furious. In fact, the practice got so common that films that didn't have any logical reason to use it, say the immortal Zac Efron classic, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. We don't want you showing up stag and riling each other up. We don't rile each other up! We never get riled up! Scheduled screenings in thousands of theaters the night before opening and took in a snappy $1.6 million. So we have now arrived at Top Gun Maverick. Good morning, aviators. Which opened officially on Friday. This is your captain speaking. But started its preview screenings on Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. Not sure by what conceivable logic that isn't opening on Thursday, but okay, it's how Hollywood rolls. Except that there'd been previous Top Gun previews, IMAX screenings all across the country on Tuesday and on Wednesday, all folded into Friday for purposes of opening day bragging rights. A total of $19 million in preview money to add to the $32 million that Top Gun had made on its actual opening day. Having any fun yet? And it doesn't stop there. Top Gun Maverick goes into the record books today with, and I'm quoting here, a record four-day Memorial Day weekend gross of $156 million, even though it took seven days to achieve that number. And why? It's one of life's mysteries, sir. That's about right. I'm Bob Mandela. 
And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. It's the Red Sox and the Reds at Fenway tonight for game one of two. Michael Walker tosses the first pitch at 7:10. Last day in May, it looks like it is the last really sunny day for a while. Clouds move in tonight down around 54 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a lot cooler, topping out at 60. Thursday, cloudy again, up in the mid-60s. Not too much change for Friday. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And the Sawyer Free Library 2025 Foundation, transforming Gloucester and the North Shore with the renovation and expansion of Cape Ann's oldest public library, a philanthropic mission to elevate a lifeline of services for all people. Gloucester's new net zero hub of equity, connection, and advancement. Learn more at sawyerfree2025.org.